0: In the middle of that deep depression, when I was laying in bed for six weeks, I am still beloved by God. I'm no less useful to the kingdom of God in my weakness and sickness than I am if I was, you know, at a conference speaking to thousands of people or writing a book that, you know, tons of people read.
1: How do you forgive when the wound is still open? How do you leave a legacy of redemption? instead of dysfunction? How do you trust God when your deepest fears are realized? Join me, Sarah May, along with some wise mentors along the way as we explore these and other messy heart topics and the strategies we can use to seek healing in the pain and restoration in the ruins. Welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Friends, the interview I have today is one that I have been looking forward to for months. I'm talking with Aliyah Joy, author of the book Glorious Weakness Discovering God and All We Lack. And the link to that book is in the show notes. And today we're going to be talking about depression and a culture that seems to despise lack. We're talking about poverty and trauma and where God fits into all of these hard things. Aaliyah, welcome to the show. Yeah,
0: welcome. Thanks for having me. We're glad you're here. <laughs> I know. I'm like, we finally, finally made it happen.
1: Aaliyah, give me just like one minute of uh, what you're doing now, how many kids you have. Just give me like a quick little, you know, who are you? Where are you? What are you doing? Where am I?
0: I am in Central Oregon at my kitchen table and I have three children. My oldest is up at the community college today. My two younger are um, at a cohort that they go to on thursdays i homeschool my tiny asian mother is in town running around and my husband is um out with the dog so that is that is the kind of what is happening um while i podcast the cohort sounds so naughty it's a cohort i know that's what they call it it's, it's kind of like a co-op but i don't have to be there so that's lovely
1: all right would you be willing to give us one story that encapsulates the trauma you experienced as a child?
0: Sure. Um, so I was a missionary kid in Nepal, and I got sick with uh, leukemia, and we had to move back to the States um, for care. And what no one knew at the time was that I had been sexually abused by uh, a boy that was there um, for a period of time. He was a teenage teenager. I was four and five. Um, And I never told anybody. So those memories and experiences really traumatized me. I felt like my body had betrayed me in all of these ways, first by being sick. um, I mean, sorry, first by being um, abused and then by becoming sick. And I literally began to believe that because of how dirty that made me or how dirty that made me feel, uh, the things that I knew that I felt like I wasn't supposed to know, um, it was just, it was very traumatic and I carried that, that, you know, I, I talked in the book about the lethal burden of silence and how, um, it just starts to kill off parts of us because we start to believe all these lies about who we are and how we matter and what we mean to God. And, um, so when we came back to the U S everything was just extremely difficult. We didn't fit in, um, or at the very least I felt like I didn't fit in. Um, I felt very othered by The society that we were kind of plunged into, um, I felt ignored by God and very hurt by the church. I think we had a lot of issues with bitterness and and things coming from the mission field back to just a faith that we didn't understand here. And so that was really the foundational trauma, I think, that would continue throughout my life that God would be um, dealing with. But that was the start of it.
1: And one of the things that I want to talk with you about for sure is depression. But before we get into that, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like, because we talk a lot about, well, I talk a lot about or I've heard lots of stories about people who are dealing with, you know, like chemical depression or their brains just aren't, you know, the chemistry is not quite right. Um, would you say that you, the depression that you've experienced, because it's pretty debilitating, um, would you say you could trace that back to the abuse? Cause I think abuse like rewires our brains. I think um, it does something like that. So would you place it there or would you say that it maybe is in combination with something genetic or hereditary or something?
0: Yeah, there is a genetic component to a lot of the mental illness. I have bipolar disorder, um, but I also have been treated for PTSD. Um, and that is definitely stems from a lot of those experiences in my youth with um, sexual abuse. And so, there is a there is a genetic component for sure, um, but there's also something that um, scientists have called ACE scores, and uh, they've been studying it for a while. I'm not an expert on this, but um, you can take these tests and ask you questions about early childhood, and a lot of those markers. The higher your number, the more likely you are to have this sort of genetic rewiring where your trauma, you you kind of have this trauma body or trauma brain. And it um, works differently than, you know, perhaps other people that did not have those things. And so it asks questions like, you know, was one of your parents incarcerated? Or did you grow up in a family where, you know, you saw your mom getting beaten or your father getting, you know, violent kind of things or abuse, different levels of poverty, um, and those things have a huge effect on the stability and sort of wiring of uh, children's brains, and so I think this is, a lot of people are talking about it in terms of the adoption world, um, these kids that have been traumatized at a really early age and then start exhibiting um, signs of that trauma as they're older, and some of that manifests um, bodily. One of the things that I thought was fascinating that I read really recently, I have very severe asthma, um, And it will flare up sometimes and just be. And I think that, I think that was the reason we didn't do the podcast earlier. I was like, I can't breathe and I have no voice. So podcasting isn't going to work. So I think we rescheduled a couple times because of that as well. But um, asthma is one of the things that is very linked to childhood trauma and a high A score. So there are some things there that really do need to be focused on and be worked through um, and to take in consideration when you think about how you're dealing with have depression and other mental illnesses and, and even physical illnesses.
1: Yeah. I've been watching like all of these videos from the Allender Center. Are you familiar with Dan Allender? At I'm all? not. Okay. He wrote the wounded heart. It's for adults who've um, suffered childhood sexual abuse. And um, he just talks about that link between, our physical bodies like how often we'll get ill (laughs) because of childhood trauma and I'm I'm wondering and I don't I don't know but have you seen that as you've gone through a process of healing and of course healing doesn't mean we arrive right it's just a path but have you seen any physical symptoms get better or no um not really
0: (laughs) yeah no I know I think I've been sick you know when chronically ill in some way for most of my life um different different things and i have i do have a weakened immune system and i have some chronic issues that flare up and um i don't see my healing coming in that way um at least at this point i i wish (laughs) but um i mean that would be lovely but yeah no i wouldn't say that it's um physical so much but um But I do think that even just having an awareness of like this, there was a huge sort of burden lifting when I could say this is not my fault and it's not my fault that I'm sick and it's not my fault that I'm struggling mentally and it's not my fault that I was abused. I didn't ask for it. You know, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, And so those lies that I had believed for so long, when we start to let go of those and realize you know, when I had my children and I would look at a four or five year old, I would think, oh my gosh, like, of course I wasn't at fault, you know, but I felt like I never really said no. I never verbally said no. And so it was my fault, you know, or I never, I could have told my parents at any time and it would have stopped, but I never did. So I let it happen, you know? (laughs) Um, And then as an adult, you know, looking at, looking at that and realizing that's ridiculous, but that was what was in my mind. And so when I was finally able to say it wasn't my fault, the things that happened to me, um, were not my fault. Um, I think there's a lot of, there is a burden lifting and there is a a release so that when I am sick, it doesn't feel like I asked for this, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And did you, how did you know like to speak the truth of those things. Like, did you go to counseling? Like, how did you learn how to grieve the little girl who was so traumatized?
0: Yeah. I don't think there was a, there wasn't a, um, you know, this is the point where I realized it. And then everything was good from then on. I still struggle with those things. It's an ongoing process. And there are layers of healing that have happened over the years. Um, you know, when I first became a Christian, I thought, Oh, okay. Okay you know god cares about me it, you know in my mind i had this sort of script of how god had let that happen and in my mind he looked the other way like he just looked the other way he wasn't there but he just let it happen and um it really made me doubt god's goodness so when i became a christian and i had this different understanding of god's goodness in the midst of suffering or horrible things i I thought, okay, I'm good. I'm healed, <laughs> you know? And I could talk about it kind of in an unemotional way. It didn't, you know, I'd be like, yes, this happened. I, I think I was about 17 or 18 when I finally told my mom what had happened. And so then I didn't start coming out really. I didn't really know um, the effect that had till I got married. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I'm married and I have a sex life. And what does a sex life look like for a girl that's traumatized and has dealt with all of this, um, you know, stuff from my, where in my mind, it, you know, there's this abuse in my past and my body is very complicated. And, you know, the growing up in somewhat of a purity culture, like what does it look like to now be married and not have all of these issues? Um, and so that it started coming out. Then I had a lot of, a lot of issues in our marriage. <clears throat> and then um, I ended up going to have um, EMDR therapy the dam kind of broke. Then Uh, I started realizing that there's just all this pain down there and it was manifesting in different ways in my life. And, um, and so that was kind of the first layer and I was dealing with that. and I thought, Oh, okay, I'm healed. (laughs) There was a lot of like, okay, I'm done with that now. Um, and then things would come back up when I was a mom, when I was pregnant, you know, things that changed with my body had a lot to do with, um, you know, I have very complicated relationship with my body and with it being sick and with it being abused and with it being something that I wished I could escape from because it only caused me pain um, or it got too much attention or didn't get enough attention or, um, you know, all of those things. And so <clears throat> for me, it just, it came in layers of realizing there's still more work to do. There's still more um, things that I need to walk through. There's still more realizations I have to have um, in learning to, be kind to myself and learning to uh, accept God's grace and his covering and his mercy and know that he sees me and my body as good and that he loves me and that he cares for me. And, um, and so it's just been a process of walking through that. I think one of the big things for me, when when I started writing, I've always written, but in journals that I you know, have been totally private. And I never planned on writing all my feelings on the internet. That was never like a goal. Um, I initially started my blog thinking it was going to be a sewing blog, which is a whole other story. And I was going to be like homeschool tips and do it yourself stuff. Cause I, I do like a lot of like home stuff. And then I realized I'm terrible at it. So I realized, okay, this is not really my jam, but I had this blog and shortly after I went through a really severe depression, and I started writing about it. And um, before too long, there were people that were showing up and saying, this is my story to you. I've been through this. I feel this. You're writing what I you know, can't express. And so that was really the roots of this. It was all accidental and upside down. I never thought that I would be here sharing about my book or that you know, I'd be the one known for you know, writing all this stuff on the internet.
1: Anyway, I want to go back for a minute. Because I know you were raised in a missionary family, but you didn't come to know the Lord until later. Can you just kind of briefly tell us how did you how did you come to know Jesus?
0: Yeah, so I um, I tried to please God um, when I was little. When we came back, I I thought that was kind of the key, and it was you do all the right things, and then He'll love you. Um, so I spent my youth really trying to um, be good, but in my mind, I knew I wasn't. Like I just. I Feel this. And some of it was, you know, the lies and the false things, thinking that I was too dirty and that God couldn't accept me. And looking around and seeing, you know, the way that people talked about blessing, um, I looked at my family and thought, we're not part of that. Like, how are we not part of that? Um, And so by my middle school, you know, early teens, I was done with it. I felt like I've tried to please you and you're just distant and. God, I don't even know if you exist. And if you do exist, how could you be good? How could you let all these things happen to us? Um, and so, yeah, it was just, I was wrestling with that. And so by then I was like, I'm just done. I don't want to please you anymore. I'm just going to do my own thing. And I was very, very angry, um, in my early teens and <clears throat> very mad at God, very mad at the church. Had you told your parents at this point
1: about the abuse? I think you said 17.
0: I think it was seventeen or eighteen no i I didn't tell them to laughter. I was a Christian for about two years, okay, okay, so they didn't know any of that stuff, but yeah i um my parents actually started to go to this different church, and you know they didn't make me go i was had didn't want anything to do with the church, but we moved to Hawaii for this ministry opportunity, and it was it just kind of it was terrible and lots of stuff fell through and it was um, a bad, you know, in my mind, I'm like, exactly. Like this proves my point that God is stingy and that, you know, I very much believed in the scarcity. Like there's just not enough for us. There's never enough for us. God doesn't provide. He's just a big jerk, you know, um, and it doesn't matter what you do. Like, we, you know, he's, it's just all um, hard, all the time hard. And, And so I had gotten there. I I wasn't diagnosed with bipolar until my early thirties. So, but I definitely um, had very strong signs that I had bipolar in my teen, in my mid to late teens. I had always had ways to insulate myself from the pain, whether it was drugs or boys or partying or, you know, in in Albuquerque I had my social scene that I finally kind of fit with people that didn't fit. Um, And when I moved away from that to, Hawaii, where my parents had had gone, it was the middle of my junior year, I was super angry with them that they had made me move, and um, they were on the other side of the island one day, Um, I think my brother was with them, and I just was done, I felt all this pain pushing in, and I was in a mixed bipolar state, which I know now, and so you're like super depressed, but also extremely agitated, and I just thought, I'm done, I'm done with it all, I'm going to, you know, end my life. And, and I was struggling with that because my brother had attempted, um, death by suicide when I was in middle school and my mom had found him. He had tried to hang himself. And, um, I just saw what that did to my family afterwards. He, he survived, but, um, it was just really, really hard. And I, I didn't want to do that to my mom, but I was, I just couldn't even think clear. And I just thought, I just have to be done. Um, and I remember standing in, we were standing in this linoleum that was all cracked. And I remember just um, <laughs> throwing curse words up at God and like, so, so angry. It was not um, like a calm, repentant, like, oh God, if you're there, please. I was like, you want a piece of me? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> Like, I just, um, because I don't think there was ever a point where I didn't think God was real. I just didn't think that he could be good. I was yelling and screaming at the sky and I got knocked to the floor, physically knocked to the floor and just had this sense of peace that, um, really to this day, I can't, I can't even describe it. Um, and that was it. I thought, okay, like I'm not going to kill myself. Um, but I still didn't have answers for what happened. I'm definitely, um, tend to be very, very skeptical, um, about almost everything. And so shortly after that I started to to rationalize it. Oh, it was a chemical reaction in my body because I was at such high stress that it probably maybe my legs gave out or maybe I'm having a stroke. Or <laughs> you know, like I wanted it to be something that I could explain so that I didn't have to be accountable to a God that might want something to do with me. And and yet I couldn't understand the part of the of, of having peace. And so I started reading my Bible. I I can't say, you know, and then I fell to the floor and accepted the Lord and it was all good. I I was very hesitant to have a relationship with God and I was very untrusting. And so it took a long time. It took a long time of reading my Bible. I thought, I'm just going to check it out. You know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to see what this is about. Um, And so I started reading the Bible and I started wrestling with what the scripture said about who God is and what his character is. And during that time, um, I started to get to know him. And so my conversion story is, you know, it was this gradual sort of walking in to relationship with him, a God that I knew about really well, but did not know. And um, so, yeah, I think was, was 16. And then I think,
1: well, one of the biggest things that you have learned over your life, and this brings us back to really the topic of your book, um, is how we... Find God in our weakness, and if I'm not saying any of this right, correct me. But one of the things I wanted to kind of um, talk about was um, what depression, how people sort of view depression and weakness in our culture, the fact that it disrupts our culture, and our culture seems to really despise lack and weakness and insufficiency. Can you speak
0: to that a little bit? Yeah, I'm. I think that. The chronic nature of mental health issues or depression or um, financial issues that are, that are ongoing are what makes it very hard because I think almost everybody can care for a season. So if you have somebody whose house burned down and it's this instant trauma, people will rally around that and there will be, you know, people will try, right? This, this trauma happens and people show up with casseroles and blankets and clothes and gift cards and GoFundMe accounts um but for the person whose trauma is uh, ongoing the person whose sickness is chronic and will never end uh, the person whose suffering is um is going to be there walking with them for the rest of their life it's very hard for people to enter into that consistently and so what happens i think is you know while people are good in crisis when the crisis continues and it becomes the norm people get frustrated or tired of it or, or they just, you know, they don't know what to do. It's too much. And, um, and so it can be very, very isolating, I think, for people who struggle with, you know, mental illness, chronic illness, financial issues, it's very lonely. And it becomes this shame thing because you are isolated and you don't want to be the person that shows up at Bible study for the fifth time saying, you know, we can't make rent again this month or, You know, we have this medical bill that we can't pay, or we have this, you know, we don't have enough food and we have to go, like, nobody wants to be that person. Nobody wants to constantly be like, I'm still struggling and I'm still struggling and I'm still struggling. And, you know, I've shared sometimes about being in a depressive episode and people will be like, hope you're doing better. And it's so hard to be like, actually, I'm doing worse. (laughs) Like nobody wants to say that. And so you end up saying, yeah, okay, like maybe a little bit better because that's the hope that other people have for you. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but the way that we view the ongoing nature of some suffering and lack can make it very, very isolating. And I think especially when, you know, there's mental illness, um, it's isolating because your, your brain is working differently and there's a lot of stigma attached to that. Um, nobody would say, like, if I had cancer and somebody showed up and I was in bed all day, they would probably say, oh yeah, she needs to rest, her body, blah, blah, blah. Nobody would be like you. Just need to do these things. Like most people, that you know, I mean, there, there, there are always the exceptions to the rule. But most people would realize this person is sick and they are trying to survive. But when it comes to mental illness, um, that is not often the case. And so, when you're going through those things, it can be really, really hard. And there are, um, there aren't always those accommodations for people that are struggling in those ways. And so, in society that rewards success and skill and measurable growth. It's easy to feel like a failure because you have nothing to show for certain seasons of your life. You know, we don't want to hear from people who don't have all the answers. Um, we're just, we're not fond, especially in the church of tension or mystery or unfinished stories. You know, we are not fond of ends that don't tie up neatly or cycles that continue without reservation. I think this is one of the reasons that the North American church is really bad at lament and really bad at grief and really bad at prolonged suffering is because we want the testimony. We want the testimony that the person gets up there and says, I had bipolar disorder. I was at the end of my rope. I was 16 and about to, you know, try to kill myself and God intervened and everything has been great since. Right. Yeah. But that's not the story. The story is that Uh, I was in a super depressive episode literally weeks ago where I couldn't get out of bed um, for almost six weeks, like could Mm -hmm. barely function. And um, so what, you know, who wants to hear that story? You know, like... It's so true, everything that you're saying.
1: I mean, why can't we get up and say, I had this depressive episode where I couldn't get out of bed, but God was still with me. Or I have him even in this, even when I don't feel it, even when I still question things. Right. I think that is a testimony to God goodness.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I really tried to do with this book. When I, you know, in the, in the end, I I even say like, some people might think this doesn't tie up as neatly, but a lot, this is, this is where most of us live our lives in the in-between, right? We believe in God, we trust God, we love God, we see his goodness. And also it's very, very hard. And sometimes we sit in the dark and we think, are you even real? Like th- those are the things, you know, the, the, the idea of like how, we cry out to God and say, I believe, help my unbelief. I feel like that is my life. That is my walk of faith. Mm. Um, and so in this book, there, there aren't tidy answers, you know, it doesn't end there with the happy ending it goes on. And I think that we don't like to sit in the discomfort that weakness makes us feel. Mm. We like to say that we, you know, we got to the end and this was the result. Um, I also think that we have an issue with like we think that our testimony, I say this in the book, we think that our testimony is about our faithfulness, right? I did this mm-hmm. and this is how I overcame this, but the, our testimony is only ever that God is faithful to us. Yes. That's it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so because we don't view it that way, because a lot of us think we have to have this story that I was an addict and then I, whatever, and now I'm this, or I was mentally ill or I was sick. And then I, you know, and then this is the, the before and the after. And for, um, you know, Becoming a Christian, it's, it's death to life, but then we go on living, right? And as we're living, we continue to die to ourselves. So it's like this very complicated, it doesn't, it doesn't tie up easily and it shouldn't.
1: It reminds me of Manning too, actually, who, yes, uh, all his grace, maybe where he he was with alcoholism his entire life. And I think you can
0: say that he did not love the Lord and know him would be crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading ragamuffin gospel I remember reading that in my early twenties and thinking this guy's a heretic (laughs) because I was so legalistic. I was like, this is ridiculous. Like you have to be completely different. But what I was, what I was feeling was this is how you perform for God. And so I became a Christian and then I went right back to, you know, how do I do all of these things for God? And it was the weakness that let me experience the relationship. It was the weakness where I couldn't do anything for God. I had nothing to impress God with, you know? And I remember there were times when I would struggle. I'd be like, I can speak. Like, I know I can, I'm good at it. I can do these things. I could do all of these things for God. I could, I could lead, I could teach. If you would just like, let me be well, um, I could do all this stuff for you, you know? And, and God was like, yeah, that's not my plan for you. Wow. I think that's powerful. I almost want to sit
1: there for just a minute. (laughs) no seriously yeah the idea is get better get it together and then we can do stuff for god right like we need to work at our maximum potential and ability and and the reason i just want to sit with this a minute is because what you're saying maybe you're still doing stuff for the kingdom in your lack like not being at your fullest quote-unquote potential whatever that is not being able to have the energy or capacity or Um, You know, like people say, like, you just need to do it. Like, get up at 4 a.m. and, like, do all the things. And that is, I mean, unless you have that, unless God made you that way, because some people are made that way. Yeah, totally. You're going to feel like a failure. I mean, it's chronic that women particularly constantly feel like they are failures. And I think it's because they think that failure is just being, like maybe just being normal is what we think is being a failure. I don't don't know. Right.
0: Right. Well, I think all of us wanted to, you know, I talk in the book about calling and I thought that I was going to be a missionary. I mean, when I became a Christian Mm -hmm. and me and Josh first got married, I thought, okay, we're going to be married for a year and work. Then we're going to go overseas and live, you know, somewhere and we're going to be missionaries and we're going to save the world. You know, I got married at 19, so I was definitely going to save the world. And then, um, and then I just got really sick and, and struggled with just a little, so, so many things and God rerouted us and changed, changed a lot of things. And I thought my dreams are all dying and all of the things that you put in me and my passion and my desire, like they're all dying just all the time. And, um, I think, you know, I realize now I look around, I'm 40. So I feel like I have a little bit of more reflection on some of the things that I was doing in my 20s. You know, I look back and I go, wow, (laughs) thank God I wasn't unleashed on the world then. Um, And not that some 20 year olds, you know, I'm I'm not saying it's just age. But for me, I, I thank God that there was some limitations to what I was able to do. But I think, you know, we want leaders with answers. We want I mean, just even if you look at the church and some of the things that are going on, we want these charismatic leaders, this you know celebrity, celebrity culture, the results. We want the people that are up there that seem like they have it all together and that they're doing that. But the re- reality is, um, we're not always listening to the margins, which is where Jesus spent the majority of his time. Mm-hmm. And we're worse off for it. I really 100% believe that. Yeah. And so if we flip the script. Um, on a biblical view of the importance of weakness and how God's strength is enough. It does give this piece because we realize like in the middle of that deep depression, when I was laying in bed for six weeks, I am still beloved by God. I'm no less useful to the kingdom of God in my weakness and sickness than I am if I was, you know, at a conference speaking to thousands of people or writing a book that, you know, tons of people read like there is an aspect to what God is doing in my life, in and through me, that that nothing that I can do is going to negate, right? I'm not going to miss out on anything that God has for me. I'm just, I'm not. Um, and so there's a peace that comes from that. I'm not saying that we don't have to, to wrestle with obedience. Like, I think that's, you know, that's a different thing. I'm not saying you can just do nothing and it's fine uh, in terms of, you know, what God is actually calling you to. But I think that what we... Think of his calling is often a lot more complicated than what it really is. And I think, you know, when you look at the Bible and you you see how he talks about, you know, what are the things that we're supposed to do? We're supposed to love God. We're supposed to love our neighbor um, with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And so what does that look like for each person? It's It's not going to be the same for everybody. And so I really feel like some of the idea of calling is just bearing witness to God's goodness in your life, whatever that looks like. Um, and sometimes God good, God's goodness in my life is that my husband was able to go pick up my um, antipsychotic and my antidepressant and bring it home. And that is God's faithfulness to me.
1: Mm.
0: And that's it, you know? And so I share, this is, this is mercy right now. This is grace for me right now. And um, it doesn't seem huge. Right. But then there are those people that that go, yeah, me too. I'm also struggling in this way. And, I need to know that God is going to show up here and um, that he has been in the dark and that he understands what it feels like and that um, he's here with me. He doesn't leave us, you know.
1: That is so good. I want to revisit something you said because I hear this pain point for a lot of people, and that is they feel like God put a dream in their heart and then took that dream away by whatever circumstance so for you you know you had these dreams of becoming a missionary or and how i guess i've got a two-part question one how like heartbreaking was it for you to have to let go of those dreams like was it heartbreaking for you or was it not that bad and two how did you deal with that or see god as good in that or all that
0: yeah i think it was devastating to me um in so many ways. And I don't go into the book, um, into this much in the book overall, but I do talk a little bit about, you know, I, I had this vision of what my life was going to look like and it turned out very different. Um, and almost, almost all, all, a lot of the things that I am living and doing right now are not things that I would have chosen. And, and even things that I don't like, it took a long time to make peace with that. I'm still making peace with that. The health thing was a big thing, you know, to realize, like, these things are not going to happen. They're just not even viable for me at this point in time to do certain things or, you know, my capacity is small. So the chances of me doing certain things are not, you know, very likely. And there were a number of years where I was very uh, angry about it because I thought you may like, why would you even give me all of this? Like, why would that passion be there? Why would that thing be there? If you're just going to reroute me into a different direction, you know, why would you do that? And I think some of, um, some of the the devastation and some of the questions that we have about, you know, how our lives turn out. I have a lot of friends that, their dream was to get married and have kids and they're in their thirties or early forties. And they're still single. Why is that dream there? If they're not, if God isn't going to provide a husband, you know, or, or um, so there are so many dreams that we have, right? What do we, what do we do with those things? There is this idea, I think that, um, that we have to like, do certain things or by fulfilling those things or being in these roles, like it will fulfill this thing in us, this thing that we were made to do. And I I don't think that's always a bad thing. That that can be a really good driving motivation, but when you get to the end of that and you realize, okay, this, um, at least for the time being, this is a a dead end or or not even a dead end, but a rerouting, like I have to go in a different direction because I can't keep pushing forward in this direction. So what does that look like to switch into a different direction that, and still carrying, like, those dreams and those hopes and those things and dealing with, like, this is not what my life was supposed to look like. We do, you know, we do that so many times. I think of, you know, Sarah waiting to get pregnant for, you know, years and years and years and thinking, like, you. not only did you make me this promise, but, like, this is something I really, really want. Mm. What does it look like to be faithful to God in the midst of, you know, being exiled, sort of? But the, the idea of, like, you know, when... When we're exiled and we're in this different land and it's land this land that we don't want to be in, we can either say, you know, we're just passing through, or God can say, Invest in this place where you're at, build, you know, build houses, plant gardens. And so I have had to to think. In this you know, sort of like captivity time, in this place that I don't necessarily want to be, or that I didn't imagine for myself, Where what are the things that God could establish in my life here and now that may not be the be all and end all of my dreams, but that maybe I'm not going to see my dreams come to fruition. Maybe it's going to be in different generations. Um, maybe it's going to be long-term. Maybe I'm never going to know this side of, you know, eternity. Why it turned out that way. And I think some of that is, you know, we don't get all the answers. I don't know why I've gone through some of the things that I've gone Some stuff I I can see. Okay, God used this in this way. And then there's other things that I'm like, yeah, we could have just skipped that, God. <laughs> like, We could have just cut that right out and it would have been so much better this way. But I think that some of that comes back to trusting the nature of God. I, you know, God is always, always about our flourishing and his glory. And those two things are never dissonant. And so when we understand that, we can trust him because he, that is what he's about. He is about us flourishing and him getting the glory. And sometimes we think him getting the glory means us, you know, definitely not flourishing, right? We're not, like, nothing's good. He's not bringing about goodness in our life, but God is bringing about goodness in our life. He is always tender and kind and merciful to us. His heart is always compassionate to us, even when it doesn't look like it, even when it looks like, you know, I have bipolar disorder and we're struggling. My husband just got laid off last week. He's laid off for a couple weeks. I'm like, I don't know how we're going to pay our mortgage. I'm in the middle of a book launch. You know, like what is happening, Lord? It does. it's not ideal, right? But God is faithful. He's always faithful. And when we trust the character and the nature of God, it gives us permission to, to sort of, I'm not going to say settle, you know, in the sense of like, okay, my dream's gone. I'm just going to settle for whatever. But it gives us permission to sort of hold things loosely and to say, okay, Lord, that didn't turn out the way that I thought it was going to look. turn out. So obviously something else is happening here and I'm going to just be open that whatever you're doing is for my flourishing and your glory. And even if I don't get to see it this side of eternity, I trust you. I trust that you're good and I trust that you're going to show up and you're going to do your thing and, you know, and I'm going to walk with you. And it's not easy. I mean, it's, it's easy to say, <laughs> Do this, you know. But I get the emotions that are involved in in, you know, dead dreams. I get that.
1: I'm glad you're using that phrase about letting our dreams die or the death of our dreams. The reason is because we only it ever seems like we only ever talk about like pursuing our dreams. Not a bad thing. But I think on the flip of that, like you have to be willing to let a dream die if it's not what is for you. Like Psalm 42 says that God ordains kindness. So whatever is going to happen for us in our life, somehow he's ordaining kindness too. But um, I tell people, and my husband and I have talked about this, like you have to mourn sometimes. We sometimes have to mourn our dreams. And it is a death. And so in a death, what do we do? I mean, we grieve. There needs to be sorrow. There needs to be time to let our emotions like be what they are. Like you don't, there's not a death of a dream and you're like, Oh, okay. I guess I'm fine with this. Like, no, let yourself go through the process of the heartache of it because something died. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I say in the book, um, I'm going to quote myself, but I'm going to probably get my own quote wrong because it's been a while since I wrote my book, but It says, um, I said, I, it says, I said, um, something along the lines of it's okay to mourn the loss of dreams that you only held as like hope. Um, how else do we make peace with the present? And so I talk about that, like, like it's okay that you, you know, you didn't hold that dream in your actual hand. That it was just this hope that you had and that it's okay to mourn that because yes, that's how we make peace with our present. So I think there you know that is so true that that you know we're in a society and i think this this goes back to you know a lot of these ideas of su- success and skill and you know we have so many stories of people overcoming all of this stuff and then they do the thing and it's like you know the success story and they never gave up on their dream and then they pushed and then they got this thing and sometimes that's very true and god you know calls people to persevere in something that the odds are against them and you know we all cheer for that but there are so many stories where that didn't happen. And even, you know, I, sometimes I'll, I'll see, you know, self-helpy kind of Christianese people are like, you know, don't let anything stand in your way. Um, you know, go for your dreams. And I'm just like, did these people not read the Bible? Like look at how many dreams were deferred in the Bible. Look at how many people were re- rerouted in the Bible. Like they're doing their thing. And God's like, yeah, no, <laughs> like, we're going to go this way, you know? And, um, And he always has something better. We just don't always know what that's going to look like, you know, and it's not always immediate and it might not, it might not be in the here and now. Um, but I, I do think that there's space to, yeah, to mourn and to grieve and, and also to trust God.
1: Yes. And that actually does take me into a quote that I have from you that I want you to talk about. You say in the book, God is with me. Is he the hand that ransoms me or is he the hand that crushes me? And might he be both? And if so, how can we retain that God is good? Describe what that means for you, because um, I think that a lot of people have that question in so many words. Like, is this from God or the devil? Like, you know how people say that,
0: right? Right. Yeah. So tell me what that looks like for you. Yeah, I think this is a hard one. And, you know, it's one that people have struggled with for a long time. You look at the Psalms to see the wrestling, look at Job to see the questions that arise when we suffer or, you know, when dreams die. And I, I'm not a theologian or a scholar, but for me, um, it really looks like leaning into the character of God without having all the answers. You know, I write in the book, um, I'm going to quote myself again and hopefully get it right. Uh, we bear witness to a fierce and mighty God who promises he can be known, but not always understood. And I think that there's an aspect to God, you know, what, what this looks like to me is the knowing, um, isn't so much about is this from God or is this from the devil? Is this something, you know, it's not so much that that answer it's the walking with God and trusting his character and goodness. And I have faith that even if I don't have all the answers about where you know, the thing is coming from, is it the thorn in my flesh that he's going to remove? Because God does that, he heals and he calls us to stand up and walk and he, you know, he does those things. Or is he going to say, my grace is sufficient for you, know, for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And we don't always know going into it, which answer we're going to get. This
1: idea that we should have a formula, like that he's always going to do the same thing for
0: Right. And then if he didn't, you know, I mean, this comes into a lot of the prosperity, you know, healing, you know, if he didn't heal you, I've had people tell me I'm not healed of bipolar because I don't have enough faith or, you know, if I just believe that I would be healed and I'm like, you know, I believe 1000% that God can heal me if he wants. Absolutely believe in the power of God. Now, is that his will to heal me in in this time, at this place, in this, like, I don't know, you know, I'm not healed, so I'm going to go with no. Um But I I believe that it's possible, but I don't feel like, you know, I can manipulate God with my prayers and have him just do the thing as long as I do the thing. It's, you know, he's not a slot machine where I can just put in my, you know, whatever, and he's going to pop out whatever I want, my will. It's just like not how that works. And so to trust the nature of God.
1: Yes. This reminded me, you said, I believe God can heal me. I also believe he is under no obligation to obey my will.
0: Yeah. 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 And that's a, that's a hard one. Cause you know, sometimes I think I could do a better job. God, just move over, you know, like, let me fix this,
1: mm-hmm. you know? Well, that's part of man. We all think we can do better. I had a, I had a class in college um, and I think I had an atheist teacher and, and one of the assignments, because I was the only Christian in the class, it was this very small class. And he said, your assignment is how would you have made the world better? Like if you created the world, yeah. what would you have done? Because obviously God did not do a good right. job. He failed in that. He failed. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Okay. So here's a question I have for you. Um, you talk about gaining weight to protect yourself and you say that, um, you say I'm not seen as a whole person because I am a full person. I, just talk to me about that.
0: Yeah. I think there are a lot of ways that we reduce the image of God and other people, um, we see that a lot with racism. We see that with, um, ableism. We see, like, there are these ways that we look at people and we go, they're not fully like the Amago days kind of like lessened in them. Right. Because of this, whatever this thing is that we see on the inside. And I think in society, you know, it's interesting. I write about race. I write about mental health. I write about, and I, I've gotten, you know, my share of nasty emails from people or, you know, helpful emails that people are trying to help. And they're just, saying really terrible things like, like the, you know, if you did had have enough faith, you'd be healed kind of stuff. Um, but I was really shocked the times that I've written about, um, being overweight or dealing with my body or even like accepting parts of, you know, who I am. Um, I'm at the heaviest that I've ever been, but you know, I have to look at like, okay, I, I have I'm genetically pre- predisposed to that. I have steroids that I'm consistently on that make it extremely hard to lose weight. I have chronic illness that makes exercise really difficult. I'm on psych meds that cause weight gain, you know, and other issues. I was anorexic as a child during the leukemia, which, you know, tr- affects your metabolism as you age and your ability to to do that. There's so many components to me as a person. And yet I think it's fascinating that the times that I've written about these things, I have gotten the most, hateful emails. I mean, straight hateful emails. I've had people tell me I'm a bad mom because I'm not modeling the good health for my daughter. I've, because I told her that she's like, I don't say that I'm fat in front of her. I don't put myself down in front of her. And they're like, well, you should because you're teaching her. I mean, it's interesting that out of all of the topics I talk about, and I race gets some of that. I mean, it's right up there, but it's so interesting that, that my body And the amount of space that I take up in this world automatically people presume these things about me. I'm obviously lazy. I'm obviously slow. I'm obviously a bad parent. I'm obviously not taking care of my temple, Uh, you know, and I'm like, it's fascinating too, because the times that I have gone off my meds, there have been times that I've gone off my meds and I've lost quite a bit of weight. Um, I was not healthy mentally. I was thinking I didn't need to be on my psych meds because I was doing fine and in my, you know, bravado went off them, lost a good amount of weight, totally unhealthy mentally. And people are saying, Oh my gosh, you look amazing. You know, like they have this idea of what health looks like for me. Um, but I'm like losing my mind, but I look thinner. So, Hey, you know, you can fit in smaller jeans. You must be healthier. And so I think, you know, this idea of how we look at ourselves in these ways, how we, um, there are these stereotypes, and I think you know. I have heard before, like, "Well, you can't really talk because you struggle with gluttony," and I'm like, "Wait, like, you know, you are gluttony is a, not an issue that has to do with the weight on our scale, you know." And there are plenty of people that are rail thin that are dealing with gluttonous actions, you know, in the way that they eat in community with other people, the way that they hoard the way that they, you know, and it's, and so I just, I think that, you know, those ideas of how we see other people is so important. The idea of how we give people compassion, how we give people the right to fully embody the Imago Day, no matter what they look like, like there's no way we can take that out or reduce it. And, um, And I I just, I think that's fascinating in our society because it's, it's something that I have seen, um, so, so much in just navigating the world in this body, you know, um, what people's perceptions of, you know, of you are or what they assume. Yeah.
1: And, you know, it's, even as we're talking about this, I realize the way that we, it's so true. The way that we judge people on what we're seeing—I mean—and how easy it is. It. Uh, let me just say this: I have a friend who has um, struggled with addiction, and I remember visiting her and being like, "You look amazing." She lost all this weight, right? Well, she lost the weight because she was addicted to drugs and almost died. Like, right? It just our words, like to even. And here we think we're just being innocent, right? Or with the emails that you got that were, I mean, just so vitriolic. But like, I, I just, uh, it's just so. It's just making me right. think. Even right now, like, why do I want to tell right. people they look amazing if they look thin? Like, why do I want? Right. What is that inside of me? Yeah. Instead of caring for what's happening in their mind, what's happening with their heart and their soul? You know, I just have been recently um, listening to because I'm, I'm in counseling right now. I'm going through some different things and. One of the things I've been learning is um, what voices we're listening to, like discerning voices and any voice that we hear that has judgment, contempt, critique um, is accusatory, is, is feels like pressure or guilt or demand. Um, that is from the enemy because God says that his, his, kindness leads us to change. Kindness leads to change or a working in us. It's, it's God's kindness. So if you hear any voice that is speaking to you, that is not out of kindness. That's not from God. And, um, I just think of
0: those emails being sent to you and, Oh, uh. yeah, it was, there have been a couple that have been extremely bad. And the first, the first time it happened, I, it was pretty early when I was blogging and I remember being at, I actually remember being at a loom and I was talking to some friends and I just, I said, yeah, you know, sometimes people send me these emails and I, um, Told them about one that they had sent just about like basically just saying you're a terrible parent and all and I just bawled I mean it was like so tender and they were like you just need to delete it was exactly that that's not for you like you just need to delete that you know and so over the years I've gotten better it just I just delete you know like I'm just I'm not going to respond I'm not going to try to change their mind I'm not going to read if I start reading it and it starts going south I'm like we're done we're done with this okay
1: You say something else interesting. You say, uh, and this is going to go along with everything we're talking about. I think um, you say the North American faith nearly killed us. How so?
0: (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) I think for, for, you know, we came back, we were really disillusioned with the church. um, We were untethered, you know, we came back from the mission field. I was still recovering. And so that was really hard. Um, You know, we're meant for a body. Like that's how we're created. And, cut off parts or parts that are separate, they don't fare well on their own. I mean, just like a real body, if you chop your finger off, like it's not going to do real well, you know, like it doesn't really have a purpose just on its own. And so I think for us, that was some of it. There was so much bitterness um, because we looked at the faith that we saw around us. And it felt like, you know, to us, it felt like North American faith taught us we could please God without any faith at all. Like all you had to do was follow a couple of these, rules and you could set up your little kingdom and you could do your little thing and you could, you know, not let anything stand in the way of your dreams. You didn't have to defer to a God that was sovereign. You didn't have to defer to a God that was mighty and holy and and ask something of you. And so, um, for us, that was really, really difficult. And we, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, men, my parents would have admitted this to, we handled it really wrong. I mean, they were young and they came back and they were you know, traumatized and they'd gone through all this stuff and there wasn't, um, yeah, it was just very, very difficult. And, you know, I think about um, uh, Proverbs twenty nine eighteen. I think it's Proverbs 29, 18 in the message version says, if people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. Um, uh, but when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. And I think, you know, there was just this time um, when we came back that they could not see what God was doing, right? And so there was this sort of, fumbling around in the dark for all of those years when we were in Albuquerque. And, and so, you know, like I said, my brother had tried to attempt death by suicide and my parents were having marriage problems and we were having financial problems. And there was just, there was just so much going on. And I think, you know, and I was walking away from God completely for a number of years. My brother was as well. You know, I think one was being disconnected and two, what we could find to be connected to felt rotten, you know? Um, it felt like this is the church that, you know, and I think, I think that some of this is happening now too. There are so many people that, you know, are my readers that are like, I love God, but I can't go to church. I've been so hurt. And some of those things are extremely valid. You look at all the stuff that's happening with church too. And, you know, people that have been abused and, and there have been, you know, things that have happened and I I get it, you know, it's, it's like, you don't want to be part of something that, um, that seems to be rotten or abusive or, you know, and there are a lot of those things with the power structure. And I think, again, that's because we value power and strength and and not weakness. And so we see like these, you know, these church people that we're covering for, that people are covering for because they're in this position of power and wealth and affluence. And, um, you know, it's, it's really, it's really terrible, but I, I also know that God calls us to be part of his body and that we do not flourish on our own. And so there's an aspect of that that I think for us, um, it takes a lot of healing to be belong to the church. It takes a lot of commitment and love and, you know, all of these qualities that God gives us, the fruits of the spirit, you know, God gives those to us, but they all operate in community. They're not just, you know, like, who are you going to be kind to unless you're kind to somebody, right? Who are you, who are you going to be patient with unless somebody is like making you impatient. And so like, I'm just patient by
1: myself. Right, right, right. And also for the listeners, when she said church two, for those of you who don't know, she's not talking about church. Number two, church, T O O sort of some of the things that have been happening in the church, sexual abuse, cover um, things like that. You can Google it, yeah. but that's what she's referring to in case I can picture some people listening, probably like, what is she talking about? Like, <laughs> i mean i know that i it's funny alia because most of the people i talk to are not on like social media or, right yeah totally and they have no idea like they would be like what are you talking about
0: what are you talking about yes yes
1: okay how has your husband loved you through all of this because how many years have you been married 20 20 years and um you've struggled with this for 20 plus years yep <laughs> How has your husband loved
0: you well through this um you know he 's the most faithful man that i 've ever met. I mean he just God was so good to me in that he We are almost comically opposites in almost every way i mean it's it 's really almost fascinating how we ended. I think it was only that we were nineteen and he was twenty and you know, it was the decision that like a teenager would make of who you're going to spend your life with because we um, <laughs> we have almost nothing in common except for that we love the Lord and each other. Um, but our hobbies and I mean everything he doesn't read. He's not in you know. So he's very like um, adrenaline junkie and he's you know, adventure. And I'm like, stay home with a cup of tea and book. And he's like, I mean, I don't know the last, he doesn't read. He's, you know, has um, pretty severe dyslexia. So he's never read. He's definitely not like, he does not want to sit down and have long intellectual talks. So we're really, really different. But, um, the thing that I think, you know, that I see throughout our marriage and we've had a rough go of it. I mean, if I ever read a marriage book, there's You know, it hasn't all been like smooth sailing. We've gone through a lot, a lot of stuff, but he, he's faithful and he, um, he has loved me in a way that I needed to see, you know, this reflection of Christ in that he serves me. He has worked for 20 years in construction in Oregon winters, sometimes 16, 20 hours a day, um, And he has taken care of me and stood by me, you know, when I've been sick um, for a large part of our marriage. And, you know, like I said, he's an adrenaline junkie. He wants to, you know, I met him and he's a surfer and we thought we're going to travel the world and have all these ventures. And he's, you know, and then he got a construction job and has worked for the last 20 years while I've been, you know, to pay off medical bills or to come home and find that I can't go out because I'm really sick or, you know, I can't do this or do that because, um, I'm not able. And so the sacrifice that he's made um, to serve me in those ways and to be here and to be committed to me and to be faithful um, is really a testament to God's goodness and his character. He really took it seriously when he was like, you know, I'm going to lay down my life for her. And he has.
1: Yes. That's what I love. This is another thing I I see all the time is we, we need to have an extraordinary marriage and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, can we just have like a steady, faithful, marriage? Yeah. like I'm okay yeah. with that. Like I, yeah. it's like a whole Wendell Berry book, like just <laughs> right. steady and faithful and, connected yeah. and working construction to pay my medical bills. Like, yep. gosh, that's love. Like that's love in the dirt. That's right. Like life. And that's yeah. like love. Ugh. okay. Aliyah. I have one last question. <laughs> okay. Um, here it is. What do you want to say to the woman listening right now who is experiencing great lack, depression and loneliness? What encouragement can you offer her in the dark?
0: Um, I would say that, uh, you're not alone. I think that's, you know, isolation and feeling alone in the dark is really a huge aspect of that, you know, but you're not alone. We have a God who goes into the dark with us and for us. And, um, even when we can't see him or we can't feel him that he's good and he's faithful. And, you know, if, if it's a depression thing, you know, get help. I mean, I think sometimes it's, it's tossed out, you know, get help. And I, I, there have been times when I've bristled at it. Cause I'm like, it's easier to say than to do um, access to good mental health care. It can be really hard. And if you're in the middle of a depression, it can be really hard to go through all the loops to get help and, and do those things. But um, you know, there's no shame in taking medicine if you need it. There's no shame in getting therapy. you know there's no shame in asking for help from people that you trust and that love you. Um, you know, be kind to yourself. Um, and I think you know the biggest thing is that you're beloved by God. Nothing can take that away, even if you feel like you have absolutely nothing to offer this world. God adores you. And, you know, there, we don't have to perform and we don't have to pretend and, um, you can rest, we can rest in his goodness, even when we're struggling, um, because God holds us in the palm of his hand. So, um, I really do hope that this, that, you know, when I wrote this book at the the beginning, I was like struggling a little bit. Um, I had too many critics in my head and I was feeling all the imposter syndrome. I thought, you know, (laughs) I'm a high school dropout that has mental illness, and I've like got this book deal and I'm supposed to be writing this book and I have no idea what I'm doing. Right. Like I tricked them all into thinking I can do this. And then I started really focusing on who am I writing this book for? And it's that woman that's feeling in the dark and alone. And so I really, really hope that, um, that this book does a little bit of good for, for those people, because I've been through it. I continue to go through it. And I can honestly say that God is good. His goodness, um, his goodness astounds me and we have to learn to look for it and to hold on to it because the darkness comes too.
1: That is so good and you guys I'm not even going to give away the book because you need to just go buy it. <laughs> You're not going to give it away. Like please it's like under $15 and I'm telling you it is so rich and so good. And so just go buy it. Aliyah, thank you so much for being on. The show. Yes, thanks so much for having me. And I'm going to actually end with a quote from your book because I love it so. Much. Okay. Maybe all it takes is relenting to our vast and unavoidable need. Maybe when I worship with both hands empty and the tears flowing down, it is not the praise of a mad woman, but one utterly desperate for him. And maybe that is the gift of suffering, the gift of weakness, of being poor in spirit. Maybe being poor in spirit is the invitation to truly see the kingdom of God as one who is so loved, so valuable, so recognized by Jesus, they can come reeking with need and not, and not be found wanting. Amen. Thank you again, friend. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Reviews are how people know if they should listen or not. So please, if you like the show, take a minute and give it a review. Thank you so much. If you want to know more, check out sarahmay.com forward slash the complicated heart podcast. See you next time.